The Trinity is a revelation from God that He exists as one being in three persons. A fundamental understanding of this teaching is that each of these persons is God. Today we're going to be looking at what Scripture has to say about the Father and the Holy Spirit as God. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being with me today. My name is Tudor Alexander, I'm your host, and welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. Today we are continuing our series on the Trinity, very important topic, and we're going to be looking at how the Father and the Holy Spirit are God. Very, very important discussion, especially as we continue and begin to talk about Jesus and the Son being God. This is a very important foundation. Now, if you are just joining us, then make sure you check out the previous episodes because we cover a lot of the foundational aspects of the Trinity. In the last episode, we looked at the Trinity as it functions in salvation and why it's so necessary to have a Trinitarian view of the gospel. Otherwise, you run into some serious problems on understanding the workings of God, on understanding God's character. And at the most, you're running into apostasy, For example, modalism and some other heresies that we'll be touching on later in this series. There's a lot of really problematic issues with those beliefs for the gospel, for your own theology, and for many other things. But at the very least, not understanding these things really harms your appreciation to marvel at God. And we were created to marvel at God. We will be marveling and worshiping God when he returns. As Jesus Christ, the triune God, will be ruling through Jesus on earth, and we will get to marvel at him and at creation for the rest of eternity. So get a head start is my encouragement to you. And today we're going to be looking at how all the things both in the Old Testament and New Testament that the, that Scripture reveals on this issue force you into a trinity, into a Trinitarian understanding. Of course, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, but neither are other words that we believe, like omniscience, omnipresence omnipotence, those words aren't in the Bible, but they are inferred from very obvious places, and the same is with the Trinity. It forces you into this understanding. And my goal with this series is that you will understand that the Trinity is the most logical explanation for the facts, which is what the Bible gives us. It gives us facts about God. It gives us revelations. It doesn't give us 100% everything, but it gives us revelations, and ultimately those revelations come to a conclusion, and that conclusion is that God is one being that exists in three persons. We don't understand how that works, but the rules that apply to us don't apply to God. And again, if this is your first episode with me on this series, go back to the previous ones, especially the first episode where we took, um, take a look at some major objections, you know, like the Trinity is not logical, the Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the Trinity's pagan, all these different objections that are pretty common objections, but they're not really grounded on anything with with further study. So go check those out. But today we're going to look at the Father and the Holy Spirit because a lot of the episodes after today will be focused on Jesus and Jesus's divinity, what others people said about other people said about Jesus's divinity and these kind of topics. So there's a lot that we're going to focus on Christ, but today is about the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is also very important because the, especially with the Holy Spirit, the the Holy Spirit is a separate person, and he's probably the least understood and least appreciated person 
in, in the sense of personhood in all of, you know, the Trinity, because he is not as obvious as Christ. Obviously, Christ is a person. Now, a lot of people debate whether Christ is God. I mean, Muslims and Unitarians and, you know, other people who reject the Trinity don't accept the fact that Christ claimed to be God, that made himself equal with God. And we're going to be looking at all of those things. That's why I said there's a lot of episodes concerning Jesus on this particular topic. So today we are really focusing on the Holy Spirit and the Father. Now, the Father is an easy one, but for the sake of documenting ourselves, we will look at that as well, because the Father was or is a person, but that is very much taught in the Old Testament as well. A lot of these things were shadows and types, and they were fully revealed through Christ. And so we will definitely be looking at the Old Testament as well in the future for hints and shadows and pictures of the Trinity. For example, the angel of the Lord, the Spirit of God, all these things were realities that were painted in the Old Testament. They were revealed through Christ and the New Covenant. But our goal for the entire series is that we want to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all persons. And, very importantly, each of these persons is Yahweh, or God. Very, very important. Today we're going to be looking at the Father and the Son, and why they're persons. They're separate persons. Now, we don't really... They're not the Father and the Son, I'm sorry, the Father and the Spirit... We know that the Father and Son are persons, so we don't really need to prove that. But we will prove that the Father is God, which is very easy to prove. And we're going to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force, as some people believe. We're also going to prove that the Spirit is God. And we're going to also see a very interesting and very specific topic, but this is something that concerns Eastern Orthodoxy quite a bit which is a religion that I grew up in. And that is whether the Spirit proceeds from just the Father or from the Father and the Son. Very important question, because it deals with ontology. And if you remember from the first episode, ontology and economy are very different. When you have economy, which is function and actions, and ontology, which deals with nature of being, and the quality or the essence, right? It's very important not to mix those two together. So when we are claiming things that are eternally, you know, eternal qualities, like for example, the spirit proceeds just from the Father. What does that mean ontologically for the Trinity and for Christ? That makes a different ontology for Jesus than the Father. And that's something we want to look at today. Very important. And we're also going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. So make sure you have a notebook with you if you like to take notes, but my goal is to make sure that these episodes are resources for you. But I want you to remember as we go into this over and over again that the Bible forces you into a trinity because there's no other way to explain what is revealed. This is the best explanation that we have. And obviously we don't, we can't possibly label God and understand him 100% fully, but it is what God revealed, and this is a dynamic model of God's being. Now, I want to remind you also that you have a Trinity infographic. You can get that at danceoflife.com trinity. This is where I'll be uploading all of these episodes as a series, that you can find them in a nice, neat little place. And also, you'll be able to download for free 
high resolution infographic. You can use it for note taking for your own Bible study courses or whatever else you happen to be doing. Feel free to use it. Feel free to share it. It's a resource. It's got all of the relation. I mean, not all, but a great majority of the relationships that we see within the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, with a lot of scriptures that point you to where these relationships are painted and pictured. So I think it's very useful and it's just a good tool to have, especially if you're a visual person and and trying to fit this in your mind is very difficult, of course, because we're dealing with something that is beyond our comprehension. But having a visual way to, you know, see how these things relate to each other is very important. So let's get right to it. The first question is, is the Father God? And that one's pretty obvious, pretty easy, but let's just take a look, let's take a look at a couple of verses. So in the Old Testament, you have Exodus 4, verse 22. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Now, this is Lord Yahweh. This is Lord in capital letters. So thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let me go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's a warning to Pharaoh. So obviously Israel is the firstborn son of Yahweh, meaning the, in this sense, what is the relationship? Well, this is the, God created Israel. That was his chosen nation in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, it says, Do you do you thus repay the Lord Yahweh, your foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So this is echoing all the things that we see previously in Exodus, where Yahweh, God, is the father of the Israelites. He's the one who created them. That's the relationship. That's what father points to and what it means, the source and the creator. In Isaiah 64, verse 8, it says, But now, O Yahweh, you are our father, in capital. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Again, the same themes of creation and being, you know, being created, specifically, obviously, you have the physical creation, but you also have the the creation of a chosen people. God delineated Israel out of the pagan nations to be his chosen people to bring about the Messiah. So there's two layers of creation there. In Jeremiah, again, call me father. And this is chapter three, verse 19 through 20. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me. O house of Israel declares the Lord Yahweh. So in this case, God is calling himself, like, this is what I would want you to call me, my father. Reminds me of the verse in the New Testament where it tells us that we can cry out to God because of Jesus. We've been adopted as children into God's family. We can cry out to God, Abba, which is a very endearing term. It's a term for daddy, basically. It's a very intimate term. So this is a very interesting shadow of that future reality where we can call on God as our Father, and in a very loving way. Now in Malachi, uh, you have a couple other interesting verses. This is chapter 1, verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Again, God calling himself a father. And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? 
And of course, their idolatry is just a constant theme in the Old Testament. But in chapter 2 of my of Malachi, we have uh, Judah profaned the covenant. Have we not all one father? Again, father with a capital. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So father here is again the, the source, the one who created them, the one who brought them obviously into existence, but also who is their spiritual father as a nation, as, as giving them life politically, spiritually. He's the provider. I mean, there's so many important ideas within that uh, in that term, father. And so when we look at the New Testament, we see these things being revealed by Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, there was Yahweh. Now, you had the angel of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a future episode. But things were murky. Things were pretty murky in the Old Testament. God was obviously referred to as Father, right? But this, the distinction between the Father and the Son did not come up until the New Testament. And so this is very important because as we proceed from the Old to the New, we see color being added by the Messiah, by Jesus. Color that was not there before. We just had types and shadows. And it all starts to make a little more sense. Obviously, we can't understand it fully, but it makes a lot more sense as we look in the New Testament. In Matthew 3, verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up to, from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. So in this picture of the baptism, which is a famous scene, you have Jesus, you have the Spirit of God, which is a separate you know, in this case, I mean, you could say person, the dove, you know, doves generally don't have personhood, but the Spirit of God is separate. Let's put it that way. I have to be careful how I use my words here because we're dealing with important topics, but the Spirit of God is separate. You have Jesus, who is the Son, who is separate, and then a voice from heaven, which everybody recognizes as God Almighty, which is also separate, which is a very interesting thing. Again, it's showing us this separation between the persons in the Trinity. Now in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, you have Stephen being stoned, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So again, you have a Trinity present where Jesus, or, um, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So there's the entire Trinity being present for Stephen in the last moments of his life. Very, very interesting. And of course, we have the head of Christ is God. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Again, separation between the Father and the Son, which in the Old Testament, you didn't really have that clear distinction. I mean, you had the angel of the Lord, which again, we'll talk about, but the New Testament starts to flesh this out as Father and Son, and of course the Holy Spirit, which is very important, which we'll talk about today. But Stephen got stoned, he saw the Son, Jesus, sitting next to God, the right hand of God. So there's a separation that he saw. Now, how exactly that works, don't be dogmatic about it, because remember space and time and two things fitting in the same space and same time, that doesn't apply to God who is Spirit. 
So the right hand of God is a, first and foremost, a, a title of authority. Remember, Christ said that everything that the Father has is his and vice versa. So it, it's not necessarily saying physically, here's God, and then on the right hand of God, Jesus is sitting. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. So we can't, we can't get too literal dogmatic. But the point is that there is separation that he saw. He saw Jesus and God, meaning the Father. And, of course, in this uh, verse from Corinthians, again, there's separation from, there's Jesus and the head of God, the head of Christ is God, meaning, what is the source, right? What is the source? Well, Christ is God. This is what it's trying to tell you. It's not telling you that Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father, that he's anything less than the Father, because, again, we have to look at context. Now, I don't want to diverge too much on this particular verse, because we have a lot of, um, Episodes dedicated to Jesus and to Jesus' divinity, which I'm very thrilled to share with you because that's really the meat and potatoes of this series. Because if you realize that Jesus is God and he claimed to be God and equal with God, and that's what the Bible teaches, then the Trinity is the only logical explanation. Now, of course, there are some people that believe somehow in, in a, they're called binatarians, which we'll look at in our heresies episode. They believe the Holy Spirit's a force, but the Father and the Son are divine. And so, you know, there's just a lot of different ideas on this. But really, if Christ is God, then you have a trinity. No question. But nonetheless, these are just divisions that we see in the New Testament between the Father and the Son. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But then verse 30, I and the Father are one. So again, you have this, you know, seemingly confusing duality where you know, there's a distinction, but yet there, there is no distinction. This is why we need the, the principle of economy versus ontology. I and the Father are one, meaning, yes, we are both Yahweh. We're both God. We're, we're equal. This is one of the statements I was talking about where Jesus claims to be equal with God. And one, remember, one is a, a word for complex unity, but... There's also separation in the sense that Jesus is identifying himself as separate from the Father and my Father. So very, very interesting because a lot of the, obviously all the Jews that he was talking to, the people that were listening, they knew that the Father was referring to God from all the Old Testament things that we read, and we just read a few of them. But all the Old Testament teachings where God is the Father. Well, now just realize that, yes, there's a Father, but there's also a Son, and there's also Holy Spirit. And that that Spirit is a person. Just like you saw in the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, that was a person. It's a separate person. God is tripersonal. So imagine trying to reveal this to people that had been, you know, conditioned generation after generation to, to think a certain thing. That's why we'll look at one of the things that's very interesting in the future is we'll look at how the Jews believed in two powers in heaven. It's a theory. It was a theology. Let's put it that way to try to explain just the confusing passages of angel of the Lord and how Yahweh seemed to be multipersonal, which is very clear from, from a Trinitarian perspective. But if you are an Old Testament Jew and you have the angel of the Lord claiming to be God and receiving worship, but then God is, you know, nobody's ever seen God. I mean, how do you, how do you reconcile that? And, and they couldn't, they came up with a, theology called two powers in heaven. And that was a, a theology up until the second century. 
where Christianity started to flourish. And so the Jews who rejected Christianity declared the two powers in heaven theology a heresy. Now, of course, you can put one and one together and see why they did that. But the point is that Christianity did not invent a trinity. These ideas, the, the wrestling with God's nature has been throughout time, right? People trying to understand this revelation from God as a multipersonal being. And of course, the Our Father, Matthew 16, uh, verses 15 through 17. But who do you... Oh, this is actually not the Our Father. This is um, when the Father is speaking from heaven, but who the Father revealed to, to Simon. So Jesus says... He said to them, but do you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So again, you have a distinction between the father and the son. Very obviously that the, the father is a person. We know that the father is God. We don't need to prove that. But very obvious that the father is a separate person in the New Testament from the son. Very clear. So you have the transfiguration, which we didn't talk about. You had the baptism, which we talked about. You had things like this, where Jesus is acknowledging the Father is separate from himself, right? So modalism is wrong. God doesn't phase into different people. Like he's phasing into the Son, then he's, now he's the Father, now he's the Spirit. That, that doesn't work with all the things that Scripture presents you with. The Father is separate from the Son. And obviously the Father is God. That's something we don't even need to bother with. So you now have some things that you have to reconcile if you don't believe in a Trinity because Christ acknowledged the Father is separate. And you have times where the Father and the Son, at, at the very least, are acting separately when God speaks from heaven, which was, I thought this was for the verse, but I was confusing with something else where, again, the baptism, Jesus is there, but God is speaking from heaven. So you have multi-personal elements going on. But now, I want to move to the main question of this particular episode, which is the Holy Spirit. So the Father's an easy one. I think most people can accept that. And I think that's one thing that everybody has in common, Unitarians, even Mormons to some degree. Everybody, you know, the Jews, everybody looks at the Father and acknowledges the Father. The problem is, once you start getting into the Son, which we have a lot of episodes to focus on, and the Holy Spirit. But the, the scriptures in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, teach that the Holy Spirit is a person. And that person is Yahweh, is God. So, let's answer the first question, which is, is the Holy Spirit a person? Because Christianity teaches that the Holy Spirit is personal. It's, he's a person. He's not a force. He's not, you know, some sort of abstract thing. He's a person. Now, the first objection to this is that in Greek, the word for spirit is neuter, meaning it doesn't have any gender to it. So pneuma, which is the word for spirit, doesn't have any gender to it. But the response to this objection is very easy. That doesn't mean anything. The fact that the word pneuma is neuter, meaning it doesn't have any gender, doesn't mean anything. And we'll look a little deeper into this, but I want you to consider a few things. In Greek, the word love is feminine, but we don't say that love is a person. So the gender of various words doesn't really mean anything. It's the context 
that really determines the meaning of how a word is supposed to be used. Because, for example, this is a little bit of a, a tangent, but in the book of uh, Proverbs, wisdom, which is a feminine word in Hebrew, the word for wisdom is is feminine, and you'll see a lot of feminine pronouns in the book of Proverbs when it when it talks about wisdom. You know that she does this, or you know she has certain qualities. But if you actually read the context of of these verses, which is that there's a lot of verses dedicated to wisdom and personifying wisdom and what she says, it is very obvious if you've read the Bible, if you've studied typology, if you've studied some of these things a little more in depth, that wisdom is actually a picture of Christ. And there's a lot of studies on this particular topic where wisdom is a picture, it's an Old Testament type of Christ based on the things that she says, how she is, what is her nature, what's her quality. So why is this important? Well, it's obvious that Christ is not female, but this is a picture and a type, and the reason it's in feminine pronouns is because the word for wisdom is feminine in Hebrew, but that doesn't mean anything. It's the context of how the words are used. So again, going back to Greek, love is female, but it doesn't make love a person. You also have in German, for example, das Madchen, which is a word for little girl. But in German, this is neuter, and yet everybody knows that this is talking about gender. So, so we have to take these things with a grain of salt. When somebody says, well, the word for spirit is neuter, so there you go. It's just a conspiracy that, again, people are basically transforming the, the masculine pronouns of the spirit. That's just a conspiracy, a Trinitarian conspiracy to to make the Holy Spirit into a person where it's actually just a force. But we'll look at an article, very important article, on the masculine pronouns in John's Gospel. And this is uh, something I recommend that you look into. It's, it's a pretty longer article. You can read a little more in-depth about, like it's an in-depth language study by somebody who does these things on a, on a more in-depth basis. But we're going to pick a little spot here and read out of it. John is the only biblical author to refer to the Holy Spirit as the parakletos, or the paraclete, or advocate or counselor. So parakletos in Greek means advocate. John uses the Greek word parakletos four times in his gospel. This is in John 14, 16, John 14, 26, John 15, verse 26, and John 16, verse 7. Always in reference to the Holy Spirit. So again, context is what matters, very important. Parakletos is grammatically masculine and any pronouns, articles, adjectives, and participles directly associated with it have to be masculine. We see this principle of grammatical agreement demonstrated in John 14 through 16. The paraclete is the spirit of truth. The paraclete or parakletos is the main subject of John 14 and six, all the way through 16, the, the verses that we just mentioned, and also of John 16 verse 13 through 14. This is when Jesus says he's going to send the advocate. In three, in three of these verses, John has a phrase that contains the neuter word pneuma, which is spirit, to spell out who the paraclete is. It is the additional phrase that seems to have led some people to confusion about the, gra- the grammatical gender. So again, this is, a, this is a common objection that people say, well, the spirit is neuter, so you know the Holy Spirit is not a, a male, he's not personal. This is just something that's added. But this is there's a little more digging you have to do. 
because John refers to the Spirit as the paraclete, but but refers specifically who the paraclete is, and that's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is neuter, and we'll, we'll look at this in just a second. In John 14, 26, the paraclete is the Holy Spirit who the Father will send in Jesus' name. In John 15, verse 26, the paraclete is the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. In John 16, verse 13, the paraclete is the Spirit of truth. At the risk of sounding repetitious, Paracletos is grammatically masculine, and pronouns referring to the paraclete are grammatically masculine in these verses. So the, the pronouns relating to the advocate are masculine, so they, there's no mismatch, there's no conspiracy. Pronouns that refer to the spirit, which is pneuma, are neuter, such as the neuter relative pronoun behind the word who in John 14, verse 26, and 15, verse 26. Grammar rules regarding gender have not been broken in John's gospel, Pronouns that should be neuter are neuter. They have not been masculinized. Okay, so what do we what do we do with this? Well, a couple important points. So John calls the Holy Spirit a masculine title, which is the advocate, paracletos, counselor. That's an that's a masculine name. And every time that he uses pronouns to refer to the paraclete, the advocate, they're masculine and they're translated in English as masculine. Now, of course, you also have clarity, like, who's the advocate? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But when he says the Holy Spirit to clarify, so you understand, okay, the advocate is the Spirit, the Spirit is the advocate. The Spirit is not a masculine word in Greek. The Spirit is a neuter word in Greek. And so you have neuter pronouns. However, in English, sometimes those pronouns are translated to male masculine pronouns to make more sense. But that doesn't mean that in the original language, this was changed or there's a mismatch or there's some sort of conspiracy to masculinize the pronouns in the gospel to to make the Holy Spirit masculine. No, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the advocate, which is a masculine pro, masculine noun. It's a masculine title. And those pronouns having to do with that title are masculinized because they have to be. But the spirit is neutral, neuter, and when the pronouns are used for the spirit, they are neuter. However, again, there are times like, for example, John 16, verse 13, where he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, this is a very important, it's one of those things where, okay, what is he talking about? When the spirit of truth comes, he. What is the he here? And you have to go to the original language because he is ekanos. Ekanos is actually a masculine pronoun. It refers back to previous verses in John where the advocate was used. Do, do you see? This is a nuanced type of, of situation, but I hope you see it. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all to the truth. That he is not added in English. It is not a neuter word that was translated into a masculine pronoun in English. It is a masculine pronoun in Greek because ekanos refers back to previous verses where the word advocate was used to identify the spirit. So in the same sentence, you have when the spirit of truth comes, he masculine, he as in person, masculine, will guide you into all the truth, in all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. So those he's 
are masculine, meaning they're referring to the Holy Spirit as a person, as a masculine person. So there's no conspiracy here. All the grammar in John lines up. Some of the neuter pronouns in English, they're masculinized for for just ease of reading and, and sense of it. But in the original language, it was very clear that John saw the Holy Spirit as a he. And we're going to see why in, a, in just a second. Because Hebrews throughout the Old Testament, the people who wrote the Bible, they always believed the spirits were personal. This was something that you, again, this is cultural context now. So we just looked at language context. Again, language, the context of a word determines its meaning. Love is feminine, but that doesn't make love a person. doesn't mean it just suddenly gains personhood because love is gendered. Same with spirit being ungendered, right? We have to look at the context. How is the word being used? How did the author intend for us to understand what he's writing? Now, one thing that helps with that is understanding the cultural context. And again, the Hebrews believed in personal spirits. In the Bible, spirits were always personal. The idea of a force, like like the Kabbalah or, or this force that you could basically manipulate, this is mysticism. All mysticism and occult practice has this in common, in that it sees this general force, kind of like Star Wars, which, again, that's a whole rabbit hole too, because those movies often have an occult layer within them. But this idea of a force that you can manipulate to do your bidding, this is a mystical thing. But... The Bible teaches you personal spirits, and especially the Holy Spirit is a person, because you have to be accountable. When you have a spirit that is like a force, and then you have a spirit that's actually a person, what is the main difference? The main difference is accountability. And this right here is one of the main problems with people like who believe New Age, who are atheists, who reject the gospel. It's all about accountability. It's not about evidence. Most of the time it's not. It's not about anything else other than accountability. You can present somebody with all of the evidence for the resurrection, for a triune God, for everything that the Bible teaches, because the Bible is very rich in evidence. I'm a Christian because of the, of the evidence. Now, of course, I have my own personal evidence, my own personal experiences. But first and foremost, I'm a Christian because Christianity is true based on the evidence. Christianity, God made sure to, to give us plenty of evidence. But the issue is not evidence. I mean, look at the Hebrews when they were rescued from Egypt. God gave them ample evidence of who he is. And still, what happened? Within a few days, they already started complaining about food and water and rebelling and, you know, just just not obeying the Lord. And so evidence is never the issue. It's always accountability. And when you have personal spirits, when you have a personal aspect to God, that brings in accountability. And that's the problem that a lot of people have. So now the question is, did Hebrews believe in personal spirits? And the answer, of course, is yes. We have so many examples. We have Saul and the woman at Endor, the medium, where she called up the spirit of Samuel. Now, we're going to talk about this in an afterlife series that I plan on doing, but the spirit of Sam- it wasn't actually Samuel's soul, okay? There's no soul that came from the underworld and was being channeled. It was a demon pretending to be Samuel. Now, that may ruffle some feathers. That may sound controversial. I'm not going to open that can of worms here. But that was a medium communing with demons. And demons present themselves as what you want 
to see, what you want to hear, and that's what Saul got because he wanted to see Samuel. And so the demons masqueraded as the prophet who had just died. So, but either way, it's a personal aspect. It wasn't like a force that she was communing with. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, we see an evil spirit from the Lord goes out. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, this is not a force happening. This is a personal spirit. Very important because if this is a personal spirit that is harming him, then the spirit that departed Saul was also a personal spirit. Do you see the relationship? Very, very important. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19 through 23, you have Micaiah's vision, and he sees basically the Lord and, and basically the, the spirits around him, and it's all personal. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one thing and the other said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. You have a person that stands before the Lord. He says, I, forces do not say I. And of course we have God responding to that. And says, the Lord said to him, by what means? And he, personal pronoun said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, you shall succeed, go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So when he, when the scripture says, put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, this is a personal spirit that has volunteered and chosen to come and deceive Ahab. And God said, go for it. I permit you to do so. This is not a force that gets dispelled. It's a person. So very important that, again, the Hebrews saw in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that spirits are personal. Now, in Luke chapter 24, this is now the New Testament, as the apostles think they saw a ghost, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This is when Jesus was walking on water. (laughs) Now, again, if spirits are impersonal, Why would they think that they saw a ghost or a spirit if they saw Jesus walking on the water? Because spirits are personal. And so they thought, oh my gosh, this must be a a spirit coming after us because spirits are personal. Do you see the connection? In Mark chapter five, verse nine, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion for we are many. This is the demoniac that was possessed. And of course, prior to that, Jesus has come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So spirits, what's up with spirit? Well, they have a name and they use personal pronouns for themselves. My name is Legion. We are many. Spirits are personal. Now, again, this is another proof text that shows us that the rules of the spirit world don't apply to the, the, well, I should say the other way around. The rules of the physical world don't apply to the spirit world. So you have multiple spirits speaking as one being, but obviously there are multiple spirits, there's multiple persons. How does that work? I don't know. We don't understand that because we have a limited consciousness. We have one mind, one body, one soul, one consciousness. We, we, you can't superimpose multiple people on one brain, you know, one mind. So 
these things we can't really understand fully, but they do reveal the nature of the spirit world. And that nature is that two things can fit in the same space at the same time and, and exist that way. So very interesting, again, for people who think that the Trinity is not logical. In Matthew 12, verse 43 through 45, we also have an unclean spirit. Um, this is 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Now look, uh, uh, we'll keep, keep going here, but waterless places seeking rest. Forces do not seek rest. Okay, they're not restless. They're not doing these types of things. Verse 44, then it says, I will, I will return to my house from which I came. So Jesus is acknowledging that when a spirit is doing its thing, it's personal. I will return to my house for which I came. He doesn't say it will return. And when it comes, it finds the, the house empty, swept, and put, put in order. Now, of course, he says it is referring to the spirit, but the spirit is personal. Okay? He doesn't say the force will return or, or whatever else, the energy will return in some new age understanding. It's I. Spirits are personal. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Spirits are personal. Of course, Jesus was a second temple Jew. He understood these things. He taught these things. He echoed the same beliefs culturally that the people before him believed. And for good reason, because spirits are personal. They're not impersonal forces. Now, of course, in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 18, with the spirits in prison, that's another popular one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, bent, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Forces are not imprisoned because they formerly did not obey. Also, forces do not obey or disobey. They're just forces. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So spirits do not get imprisoned for disobeying. Or I should say, forces do not get imprisoned for disobeying. Persons do, personal beings do, and spirits are beings. So what's the conclusion from this? Well, spirits are always personal. There's not a single time in the Bible, not once, not a, not half a time, where Spirits are impersonal. Every single instance that discusses a spirit, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is personal. Spirits are personal. Now, whether they have a gender or not is a different discussion in terms of general spirits, like do demons, are they male and female? That's not really discussed. But spirits are personal. They're personal beings, which is a very important point to understand. Now, the conclusion is this. If all the spirits in the Bible are personal, whether they're, you know, demons or they're spirits sent from God or whatever else, then what do we say about the Spirit of God himself? Suddenly that turns into a force? That doesn't make sense. That's not consistent with the testimony of Scripture. And now you also have a problem with modalism and with binetarianism. Now, binetarianism basically is that it's like Trinitarianism, right? So by is two. They believe, now there's a lot of varying beliefs on this, so I'm not putting everything into a box. We'll talk about this in a future episode. But binetarianism basically thinks that the Holy Spirit is a force. 
of some kind. And it's the Father and the Son, and they're both divine. But the Spirit is a force. But either way, whether you're modalist or a binatarianist, binatarianist or whatever else, you have a serious problem if you reject the Trinity. And that is this. If the Spirit is a person, but that person is the Father or the Son, meaning God is phasing into the Spirit and then doing spiritual things through the Spirit and then coming back to being the Son. However you want to understand that. Basically, you reject the Trinity, so the Spirit is not his own person. He's either the either the, the Father or the Son. Then you have a lot of problems. You have many problems. One of them being, how do you know who is using the Spirit? How do you know when the Father is using the Spirit or the Son is using the Spirit? You don't. There's There's no way to really... No, and if that's the case, if if the Spirit is being used by both, then does that mean does the Spirit control both the Father and the Son? I mean, how do you how do you reconcile that? You really don't. You you have situations like the baptism being led into the wilderness, you know, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. You have self-glorification, self-testimony. Did the Son lead himself? Did uh, the son land on himself? Did the father land on the son and was talking from heaven? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's so many problems with this view that the spirit is this force that is kind of between the father and the son, and it's either the father or the son. I mean, you just can't reconcile. The spirit is a person because every spirit in the Bible is personal, and the spirit of God is no exception. But then if that's the case, you have a trinity. You see why this is so important? So the only conclusion which the Bible forces you into is that the Spirit is a person and this person is separate from the Father and from the Son. It's the only logical thing that makes sense and that avoids serious problems, serious theological problems. Now, what's really interesting in the Old Testament, you have the word Holy Spirit three times. It's in Psalm 51 and Isaiah 63, so Psalm 51, verse 11, cast me, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Interesting. And Isaiah 63, verse 10 through 11, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to this verse, which is very interesting. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and of his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? So you have the, the phrase, the wording Holy Spirit used in the Old Testament a few times. Now, again, the Holy Spirit is types and shadows. It is designed to be the thing that makes you long for the Messiah. As you read to the Holy or to the Old Testament, you see types and shadows, and, and they're confusing sometimes, and that's by design. It's designed that way so that when Christ comes and he puts that final puzzle piece in the middle of the piece and you see the whole thing and you marvel. That's the whole point. It's all about Jesus and glorifying Christ. That's what Christ said. The scriptures speak of me. Now, I want to look at the emotional qualities of the Holy Spirit because throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have qualities of a person based on various things that we know are unique to persons and personhood, whether it's emotions or certain qualities. And we're going to look at both of these in the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, we know the Spirit of the Lord is a phrase that shows up 
over 20 times in the Old Testament. But the confusing thing is this, and this is where I think some people who reject the personhood of the Holy Spirit stumble on, because a lot of times when you have Spirit of the Lord or Spirit of God, and you do a word search, for example, and you find these entries in Scripture in the Old Testament, it's not very clear. It's not very clear, because oftentimes it seems like the Spirit is a force. If you do not understand context, the cultural context, which I just mentioned, if you don't understand the context of Scripture as a whole, if you don't see the overarching theme of Scripture, and if you just focus laser eyes on verses where the Spirit of God rushed on so-and-so, or, you know, came upon, it seems like, okay, well, that seems like maybe just a force came upon him and just gave him this supernatural ability, or, you know, he started prophesying or whatever else, right? So, if you're focusing just on that, it seems like the Spirit can be a force. But again, spirits are personal. And there's a lot of clues besides the cultural context that we just talked about where Hebrews believed in personal spirits. There's no exception. They did not believe in spirits that are forces. All spirits were personal. But there are co- there's contextual clues in Scripture that prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt the Holy Spirit is a person. We just mentioned this verse, but this is Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, you cannot grieve a force. A a force cannot be grieved. Grief is a unique quality of personhood. It's an emotional quality. Now, of course, in Psalm 78, where this is paralleled, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Very interesting. Who, who is this talking about? The him in this, in this verse, in Psalm 78, for, verse 40, is Yahweh. It's God. But in Isaiah 63, verse 10, it says that they grieved his Holy Spirit. Do you see again that this, this shadow of the Trinity that we start seeing in the Old Testament? Where again, just like the angel of the Lord, which we haven't gotten to yet, there's these confusing times where it's like, Well, is the angel of the Lord Yahweh or not? He is. But wait, Yahweh's in heaven. How does that work? Well, it works because Yahweh as a being is multipersonal. That's the only way it can work. Otherwise, there's no way to explain the facts. And you have a ton of serious problems and contradictions. So this is one of those examples where in one side of Scripture, still in the Old Testament, it says they grieved him, as in Yahweh, but... In Isaiah, it says they grieved his Holy Spirit. So who's being grieved? Well, Yahweh's being grieved. That means that the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Do you see the point? And we'll see more and more of these as we go on, especially in the New Testament. But in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Personal pronoun, and the Spirit of the Lord speaks. Forces do not speak. That's a personal quality. That's something that people do. That Now, of course, Remember when I say persons or people in the context of what I'm speaking right now, there are qualities that we associate to personhood that do not apply to God. Qualities of being a physical body, of, you know, two things in the same space at the same time, that doesn't apply to God. But personhood, emotions, will, as you'll soon see, these things do apply. And they're very much pointing to the truth that the Spirit is a person. Again, you have in 1 Kings 22, verse 24, Then Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, 
came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Again, speaking. Forces do not speak. Forces are impersonal. They do not speak. They do not interact with people and speak to them in any form or fashion. Ezekiel 11, verse 5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. Now, this is one of those examples, actually, it puts two things together, which I like. Because the first part says, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. Now, if you just stop there, it, it wouldn't, and you had no other context whatsoever, it would be hard to say, like, is this a force? Is this like a mood? Like, what is he talking about? Is this like some sort of impersonal situation? And I agree that in the Old Testament, it is harder to tell, but you have to use context, cultural context, and also context within the surrounding verse. And now in this case, you don't have to look very far because he says, and he, and he personal pronouns said to me, thus says the Lord. Now, forces do not have personal pronouns and they also do not say things. Okay, because Hebrews attributed spirits as to it being personal beings. Spirits are personal. So when Ezekiel is experiencing the spirit of the Lord falling upon him, what is he likely to believe? What is he communicating here? First off, he believed that the spirit was a person because he and he said, spirits are saying things. Forces do not say things. They're not able to do that. They're just inanimate. Now, in the New Testament, all of this blossoms into a much more rich theology that is very clear to anybody who's honest with Scripture. But I wanted to give you the Old Testament to show you that even in the Old Testament, with, with how shadowy it is in terms of these pictures, you still have the same idea that the Spirit is a person and that, that he has qualities of a person. But in the New Testament, it is abundantly clear. John 16, verse 8. And when he, this is this, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Convicting is something that happens. People convict you. Forces do not convict your heart. Advocate is a person that convicts you and convicts your heart. That's not something that a force does. In John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are come. So in this verse alone, you have three aspects that are unique to persons. He guides, he will not speak, so he's speaking, and he hears things, right? Forces do not guide, do not speak, whether they're speaking on their own authority. First off, do forces have authority? That's another one. I didn't even realize that until I just read this. That's a fourth one. So when he says, for he will not speak on his own authority. Well, forces don't have authority, you know, left or right. Doesn't Forces don't have authority. But he's not speaking on his own authority, meaning he has an authority, but he's not going to speak on his own authority. Do you see the, the important distinction here? He guides, he speaks, he has an authority, and he hears, right? So all these things are personal qualities that only people have, not forces. Acts 5, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, so this is when Ananias basically was dishonest with his tribute. 
And in this case, Peter is rebuking him. And we're going to come back to this verse in, in just a little bit when we look at the Holy Spirit being God. But I want to look at the emotional aspects first. You do not lie to, to inanimate forces, okay? Because when you're lying to someone, there's a lot of personal things attached to that. A person who is that's somebody that you know, obviously, right? Or that you even have, as an acquaintance, that's a personal thing. So you can't lie to a force, right? Somebody that maybe you're betraying. Okay, there's some element of betrayal in this verse. So you can't betray an inanimate force. You know, whatever you do, you're not going to betray magnetism or you're not going to betray whatever else. So ultimately, when Peter says, why, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That means you're lying to a person. The Holy Spirit is a person because he can be lied to. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 19 through 21, we see again the same things we saw in the Old Testament. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, just like you have in the Old Testament, where you have a lot of these verses of the Spirit speaking and saying things to the various prophets. Very, very interesting. Acts 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, again, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, this is this is probably one of the most profound verses on this particular topic of the person of the Holy Spirit. Because you have, I mean, you have so much going on here. First off, the Holy Spirit said, so again, forces don't say things. Then you have set apart for me, which you have basically the Holy Spirit acknowledging that there is himself. He's acknowledging himself as a separate individual, me, myself, I, right? Set apart for me. I'm somebody separate that you need to set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I, recognition of self, self self-aware, have called them. Forces do not call people. People call people. Persons call people. Okay, so when the Holy Spirit basically says, well, when he says anything, that's not a force, that's a person that's saying. But when he says, set apart for me, for I have called them, he's self-aware. Do you realize that? Do you know how important this verse is for proving that the Holy Spirit is a person? The Holy Spirit is acknowledging himself He's self-aware and he has a will because he's called them. That is his desire, his will. And he's planned this out and now he's communicating it to um, to Peter, I believe, right? Holy Spirit said, yeah, for Barnabas and Saul. So you have also in, um, where was I here? I missed my spot. Here we go. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And to not grieve the Holy Spirit of the of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, you're grieving. You can't grieve a force. You're grieving the Holy Spirit, just like in the Old Testament, how we saw that. In Hebrews 10, verse 29, it says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? A force cannot be outraged. Outrage is a uniquely personal quality. It's, an, it's a quality reserved for persons that can experience rage. Forces do not experience rage. 
1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, another popular verse. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Forces do not reside in temples. And now, of course, the you here is plural. So he's speaking your body being the body of Christ, which is the church. It's not necessarily speaking of your personal body. That's another debated issue. But this is a plural. He's speaking to the church which is the body of Christ. And that body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the new temple. It's the new temple that was built. Which, by the way, if you're confused on end times events and you think that the Jews building a third physical temple in Jerusalem is a Bible prophecy unfolding, that's not what's actually happening. So go check out my end time series. That's danceoflife.com slash end times. If you have never heard of this idea, but the temple was already built by Christ and that was a spiritual temple. And that temple is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But again, forces do not reside in temples. Persons do. Personal beings, personal spirits, personal gods. Right now, of course, the spirit is not a separate God. But my point is the idea of a temple has always been to honor a person of some kind, a personal being. So very important. The, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a person. It's not a force. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, we see the Holy Spirit giving gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit has a will. And we saw that earlier when the Spirit called people and and commands things, like in uh, Acts 13, verse 2, where he commands to set apart Saul and, and Barnabas. So he's commanding, he has a will, he's being obeyed. Right? Peter obeyed the Holy Spirit, so you, know, you don't obey personal spirits unless they're God. This is this is the kind of constant contextual things that you need to keep in mind that are just flying in the face of anybody who rejects the Trinity because the scriptures are very, very clear, especially in the New Testament. The Spirit of God appears over 20 times in the Old Testament, and it's very difficult to evaluate because, again, we have types and shadows. And in the Old Testament, a lot of the Spirit of God is doing is rushing upon people, leaving people. So it's it's not clear contextually what's going on. But we know that Hebrews believed in personal spirits. We saw some evidence of that in the Old Testament. We saw some emotional qualities that are revealed in the Old Testament, like they grieved his Holy Spirit. That's something that only happens to a person. And we know, again, from the baptism with... Jesus and the dove and the Father in heaven, the dove, forces do not inhabit animals, okay? So the dove or forces don't take on form, let's put it that way, and do, you know, intentional things. The dove landed on Jesus's shoulder. Do you see the important point here with this? I hope you do, because first off, there's actually a lot of important points. Forces do not personify into animals or beings of any kind. And if they did, they wouldn't have intentional choices. For the dove to land on Jesus, that was an intentional choice. That was something intentional and personal and intimate. Okay? The Holy Spirit was appearing as a dove, but that's because the Holy Spirit is personal. Do you see the important picture in the in the baptism alone, how it shows the Trinity, the Father, is a person who's separate. The Spirit is a person separate. 
And the son, obviously, is a person and separate. So the conclusion to take from all these things is that spirits were always personal in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Very clearly so. There's no instance ever in the Bible of spirits ever being a force or these impersonal non-personal beings or some some whatever kind of category you want to invent, but they've always been personal. Now, the gender aspect of, of, I don't think they're limited by gender, most spirits, but in the case of the Holy Spirit, it's very clear that it's a masculine pronoun that's used. Now, of course, God isn't limited by gender, but whether the spirit is personal or not is very clear. The spirit is very personal, very intimate, and very personally so. The New Testament uses some masculine pronouns and masculine identity to refer to the Spirit, like the paracletos, the advocate. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament show emotional qualities of personhood, like a will, like commanding, like self-awareness, desires, giving gifts. He gets grieved. He gets outraged. He can be lied to. All these things are personal qualities. So very clearly so that the Spirit is a person. But now if this is the case, we want to answer the ultimate question. Is this person God? And the answer is yes. This is what the Bible teaches. So let's look at a couple of these verses. We looked at one of these in, the, in just a little while ago. This is Acts 5 verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Very important verse. You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. So wait a minute. The Holy Spirit is a person, and you lied to the Holy Spirit. And the way that Peter sees that is that you have lied to God. The Spirit equals God. In Matthew 28, 19, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's because they all have one name. That's Yahweh. Yahweh is one being that exists as three persons. The Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. Now, this verse, we've talked about this in the first episode, how some people object and say, well, this was added later. It's a Trinitarian conspiracy. Go back to the first episode and check that out because I discussed this a little more detail regarding scribes and how it's not a conspiracy, even if it was added later, then this shows, if anything, that people believed and accepted a trinity very early on because this was part of the revelation. In Psalm 139, verse 7, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, again, we already understand that the context of spirit is personal. So in this, what is this teaching here in this psalm? It's teaching that the Spirit is omnipresent. Where can he hide from God's Spirit? Nowhere, because God's Spirit is omnipresent. So we have omnipresence. We have equality with God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now this is an interesting statement, but I think a, a rational way to interpret this is that the, the Spirit knows what God knows. He searches the depths of God, meaning the Spirit, we know from other places in Scripture, let's put it this way, the Spirit always reminds you of what you need to say. The Spirit reminds you how to pray. 
The Spirit searches the depths of God. So the Spirit is omniscient, meaning he knows everything there is to know, which is a quality only of God. In Matthew 12, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is the whole scene where blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where basically the Pharisees accused Jesus of basically doing all these signs and wonders by a demon, you know, by the power of the devil, basically. And Jesus rebukes them and basically speaks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy is only attributable to being something against God. You cannot blaspheme a force. Now, we already proved that the Spirit is not a force, but if you're blaspheming the Spirit, then you're basically blaspheming God. Spirit is God in order for him to be blasphemed. Do you see how the the logic connects there? The only way that the Spirit could be blasphemed is if the Spirit himself is also God. You cannot blaspheme something that is not God. You can't blaspheme a force. You can't blaspheme you know, a regular person, a an angel. Blasphemy is specifically related to God. It's a very, very important verse. Now, just a quick note. If you read that chapter and you're freaking out that you will commit the unforgivable sin or you've committed it, do not panic. This is not about that. There's a whole study series on this, and long story short, there's nothing to panic. This is one of those things that if you don't understand election, predestination, go back to the the second episode in this series, the Trinity and Salvation, because that's going to give you a right understanding of salvation, even if it's a hazy area for you and you're struggling with assurance of salvation, with eternal security, with some of these things that sound a little more theological or philosophical. It's really not that difficult when you understand the Trinity and how the Trinity works in salvation. Because if you understand that, then when you come to these challenge verses, which seem pretty scary, you realize that this is not talking about something that you or I can do, but rather about something that is revealing God's plan of salvation, which is that he chose some people to save and others he did not. He passed over them. And those who he did not save are evil, so evil that they blaspheme the Spirit of God and they resist the Spirit of God. They they harden their hearts because they were destined to do so, to reveal God's justice. So don't be afraid when you read this passage. But moving on, Hebrews 3, verse 7, he's the author of Scripture. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, this is an important thing. He's quoting uh, a Psalm, Psalm 95, and there's a lot going on here. First off, the Spirit, the Spirit is the author of Scripture, which is something we can agree on. That's the same in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So if the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture and all Scripture is God-breathed, then the Spirit is God. But in this Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11, that he's quoting, for he is our God and we are the, uh, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his land. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of the Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So the voice changes here. It's interchanged between David. David is speaking, and then suddenly God is speaking. 
which is very interesting. But in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews applies this to the Holy Spirit. So when it says, put me to the test, therefore I was provoked with that generation. So I, who's the I in this? It's Yahweh. But the Spirit says this. Do you see, do you see the parallel here? This is very important. Spirit is the author of Scripture. We know that. All, all Scripture is God-breathed. Therefore, the, the Spirit is God. The author of Hebrews applies this psalm where God is speaking of himself, saying, you put me to the test. The I is Yahweh. The, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews applies this to the Holy Spirit. And says, the Holy Spirit says, you put me to the test. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. This is the reality to understand. Again, very profound, very interesting. Now, later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15 through 16, we see that he bears witness. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Again, the Holy Spirit is saying, and he quotes Jeremiah, in this case, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, Lord here is Yahweh. It's capital Lord. Yahweh is declaring this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, in the Old Testament, if you didn't understand, of course you didn't, but when, let's say this, you didn't have the cross, you didn't have the revelation of the Trinity, you didn't have, you know, the Messiah, you didn't have really the, the bulk of what we have today. You had types and shadows. And so when God says, when Yahweh says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, that's the ultimate end, that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will, you will do what God says he wants you to do. But in the Old Testament, they didn't really understand how is that going to come about? Everything was externalized. Here's the law. Obey it. Oh, you keep failing. What's going on? Well, that's because you need a Messiah. You need a, a somebody to save you, to pay your debt, and then give a legal precedent for God to give his spirit who will conform you to the Messiah's image and make you obey. Do you see how that works? The Old Testament was a shadow. So in the New Testament, you have an explanation of how this will happen. I will put my law within them. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, first off, Christ has to die. So there's a legal precedent for God to give us the Holy Spirit and give us a new heart, make us a new creation, give, you know, the first resurrection, becoming a new person in Christ. And that puts the law on your heart through the Holy Spirit, through being inhabited by the Holy Spirit. That's what's actually being discussed here and pointed to in Jeremiah 31. And of course, you don't realize that until you read the New Testament. But the point that I'm trying to make is, back in this verse, Hebrews 10, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness. For after saying, now what did the Holy Spirit say? Well, he said what we just read in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them. Who is speaking? It's Yahweh. But the author of Hebrews says that the Holy Spirit is the one who's saying this. So the Holy Spirit, the only conclusion, if the Holy Spirit is saying this, Holy Spirit's a person, and the one who's saying in Jeremiah 31 is Yahweh, then the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Do you see the connection here? The importance of using context and relating Scripture with Scripture? Very, very important. Again, in 1 John 5 or 7, we looked at this in a previous episode. For there are three that testify 
the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Who is testifying? God is testifying, but the spirit is also testifying. So you have God and the spirit both testifying. That means the spirit is God. Do you see how that works? It's all just It all just ties together. It's very cohesive when you have the Trinity. If you don't, then you have a lot of problems you have to deal with. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 through 18. Now, the next couple of verses are going to be dealing with the Lord being the Spirit. The Spirit is God, and, and the Spirit is Christ. You're going to see a lot of realities that are, again, just like the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, and he's speaking interchangeably between Yahweh and Yahweh himself now, and Yahweh in heaven, which was very confusing to the Jews. You have the same kind of sh- shades and colors in a more vibrant way in the New Testament with, with the things I'm about to read to you. Second Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the Lord is the Spirit. Acts 16, verse 6 through 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came home to Mysia and they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So you have a couple of things going on here. The Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. You see how it's one and the same? Being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, the Holy Spirit forbade them to, to do that. But then the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do something else. So it's the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh, which is the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Spirit of Yahweh. It's all the same reality. Very interesting. But another pointing to the Spirit being God is forbidden. Who, Who is the one that has authority to forbid? It's especially when we're talking about speaking the word, which is the gospel. Who has authority to do that? Only God has authority to do that, to tell you what to do first off, and especially when it comes to the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is forbidding them and they're obeying. That means they're obeying God. Otherwise, you have a real problem with your theology. If if the Holy Spirit is not God or is a force or whatever else, like what are they doing obeying a force? Do you see the problem here? And again, in this particular set of verses, the Spirit is compared to the Spirit of Jesus. They're one and the same. They're paralleled. Now, of course, you have some other ones too, like Philippians 1 verse 19, for I know that through our prayers, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God. Romans 8 verse 9. How, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in them. What a profound verse to link three terms and reveal to you the truth. So you have spirit, which is the spirit, which is very common in the Old Testament. And of course, Romans is written to a large Jewish audience. And in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So this is a term that they were familiar with. But then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He's comparing Christ to God and the spirit of Christ to the spirit of God. Do you see all these realities are coming together? They're linked together. And the Bible is forcing you into a Trinitarian view here. The Spirit of God is the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, which is the Spirit of Yahweh. It's all the same thing. But if you reject that, then again, you have a lot of inconsistencies. 
First Peter 1, verse 10 through 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, look, look at the profound nature of this. So, he's referencing Old Testament realities, but he's using the term the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, personal, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Spirit of Christ predicted, which is a person, separate person from Christ, predicted the sufferings and glory of Christ, separate person. Do you see how this works into a Trinitarian view and there's no other possible explanation with all of the things we've talked about? Galatians 4 verse 6 is another one. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, this is that verse way back that I couldn't remember the, the name of that we have now a relationship with God to call him Daddy, Abba, which is an intimate name for Father. But the Spirit of his Son, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, which is the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, which is a separate person from the Father and the Son. This is all, it all comes together. And of course, don't forget 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, we looked at this in the last few episodes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Trinitarian blessing, just like so many others in the New Testament. If you are having fellowship with anyone other than God, and in terms of this blessing, then you have a serious problem. You First off, you can't have fellowship with a force, right? That's another proof text that the, the Spirit is personal. Fellowship doesn't happen with forces. You don't hang out with your magnet and say, oh, I had fellowship with my magnet today. It doesn't work that way. You know, you don't have fellowship with the universe. You have fellowship with God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and through the Father. So all these are personal. We also know the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted in the desert, the baptism event. Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did miracles by the Holy Spirit. So there are relational things happening throughout the New Testament through Jesus' ministry that reveal a multipersonal, interrelational nature of God. Case closed. The Spirit is a person, and that Spirit is Yahweh. It's God. So you have three persons, all of which are Yahweh. How that works in our brains, we will probably never fully grasp because we do not understand such things on a complete level. But this is what the Bible reveals, and it's profound, and it truly is something to marvel at. Now, one more topic I want to cover really quick is, does the Spirit proceed from only the Father or from both the Father and the Son? And this is specifically an Eastern Orthodox issue. There's almost a billion Eastern Orthodox in the world. I used to be Eastern Orthodox, and they teach that basically they have their own views on the Trinity, which we will cover at the very end of this series, probably. They have some unique views, which I, I think are very problematic. But one of the things that Eastern Orthodox Orthodoxy teaches is that the Spirit proceeds just from the Father. And they base that on, I believe, one verse. But we'll look at this because this is an important issue with ontology. And again, if things are eternally happening, right? So if the Spirit is only proceeding from the Father for eternity, 
How does that change the ontology of Jesus? Does that affect the ontology of the Trinity, their their workings? How is that in relationship to what we see in Scripture? So this is what we're going to look at right now. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is a very important statement because the Father is sending the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And there's something culturally here that if we don't understand, we will kind of gloss over it and not get the important meaning that the author is trying to convey here by relaying Christ's words. In the ancient world, if you're sending somebody on behalf of somebody else, they have to agree that you're you're doing that. Very important. They're part of the decision. Okay, if you're going to send somebody as an ambassador on somebody else's behalf, it's not something you do without them agreeing to it. Very important. So when Jesus is saying this, it's very clear that he is part of the decision to send the Holy Spirit. Now, again, remember economy versus ontology. In this particular statement, the Father is the one being pictured as actively sending the Spirit. But because he was doing so on behalf of the Son as an ambassador, very clearly so that the Son was part of the decision in sending the Spirit, therefore they were both part of the decision to send the Spirit. Okay, so economically the Father is the one being pictured as sending the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that the Spirit proceeds solely from the Father. It just means that in this particular picture that Christ is showing us, the Father is the one sending the Spirit on Christ's behalf. But Christ was involved in that decision. If the Spirit is an ambassador on his behalf, does that make sense? People would have understood this culture in the ancient world because this is how things worked. In today's world, we don't really, I mean, we don't have these types of formalities or these types of issues, and so it's easy to forget these ancient world attitudes. But we know from other places in John, for example, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 16, verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what the Father has is mine. What what is mine is the Father's. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What What does all this mean? I mean, put it together. Even in Matthew 28, verse 18 is another good one. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you have all authority given to Christ. The Father and the Son are one. The, the, the Father, everything the Father has is mine, and mine is the Father. They're, basically, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's this unity of purpose, of mind. All authority has been given to Christ. So now put that in context of what it is for the Father to send the Spirit as an ambassador of Christ. Do you think that Christ did not have a say in that decision? Of course he did. The Trinity is of one mind. They, they have different economies in terms of what they do, but the decision to send the Spirit on behalf of Christ has to necessarily implicate Christ's agreement to that decision. Does that make sense? Given what we know about his authority, given what we know about his oneness with the Father. Now, this doesn't mean modalism. It means one of purpose, one of mentality, of mind, right? Just like two shall become one flesh. It's a complex unity, which we talked about in the first episode. So Jesus was involved in his decision to send the Spirit, just like the Father was. Now, in John 15, verse 26, 
It says that Jesus sends, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is the verse that is often used to say that the Father, the Spirit proceeds just from the, the Father. And what's very important here, first off, is now you see that Jesus is sending the Spirit from the Father. Do you think that the Father didn't have a say in that? Of course he did. They agreed to this. This is a mutual decision to send the Spirit, meaning the sending of the Spirit is by both the Father and the Son. Now, what do we do with the word proceeds here? Well, I think that what Christ is really saying is, in other words, the, the Bible here isn't teaching you that the, the Spirit only proceeds from the Father. That's it. Doesn't doesn't come from the Son. When we just read so many things about how the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, how God sent the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of the Lord, it's it's all one reality. We just saw that the Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. So you have to put this in together into a much more nuanced perspective because you're dealing with something that inherently, to our sense of logic, doesn't work in our limited brains. You have an interrelated reality with the Trinity. So when it's saying proceeds from the Father, Christ, I believe the focus is more on the source of the Spirit. Where is the Spirit coming? He's proceeding from the Father. I mean, he's coming from the source He's God. The Spirit is God. So that you know that the Spirit that is going to come with you and advise you and be your advocate, that's God. You don't need to worry because, again, spirits are personal. Test the spirits. So Christ is giving them reassurance of the origin of the Spirit. He's not giving them a theological lesson on the Trinity. If anything, he's showing that the Spirit of God is being sent by both himself and the Father, and in doing so, He's relating himself to the Father. You know, I and the Father are one. It's another claim of divinity. Now, the Bible never says literally that the Spirit proceeds from Jesus. Now, it doesn't say that, but this is an argument from silence to say, well, it never says that, so therefore it only proceeds from the Father. This is an argument of silence, from silence, because we have to use context. Again, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, all that the Father has is mine and vice versa, these are eternal realities. And so when we are dealing with something like being sent by both the Father and the Son, the Bible clearly tells you that both Jesus and the Father send the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit proceeds only from the Father, then that affects ontology, because now the question is, how does that work if it's an eternal reality? If the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father only, What does that say about Christ when he says, I and the Father are one, and all that the Father has is mine, and all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me? That's not consistent. If, If the Father has reserved this special privilege of sending the Spirit for himself, you see, you see the confusion here where we have to be very clear, especially from a Trinitarian perspective? Because one more verse I want to show you is, I think, gives us the final piece of contour, and that's John 20, verse 22. And, he's, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So he breathes on them, he gives them the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the one who breathed on them life, new life, spiritual life, and gives them the Holy Spirit. This is an obvious parallel to Genesis when Adam was created and 
God breathed into his nostril the breath of life. This is a parallel verse to that. But now it's the spiritual reality being created, which is just so profound. But we know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the one who created everything. Jesus created everything for him, and the world was created through him and by him and for him. So when in Genesis it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and we know that Christ was the one who was creating the world, and we know from these verses that Christ is the one who sends the Spirit, it's very clear when we use context that Christ was the one sending the Spirit to hover over the waters and to do these creative things. Just like he breathed into them in the apostles' nostril, or the apostles, he breathed onto them the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit. It originated from Christ in this particular verse. Very clearly so. Just like when he breathed into Adam and gave him new life. He was the one creating. It originated from him. It proceeded from him. Now, it doesn't say proceeded from. So again, you have to use context and not be literal and dogmatic about this because Scripture has a lot of context to give you that that is in, in conflict with the idea that the Spirit proceeds only from the Father. So these are eternal realities that we are seeing, and, and the truth is that the Spirit proceeds from Christ, very clearly so. He's the one who gives the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sends the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but Jesus and the Father are one. We know that the Spirit is God. We know the Spirit is a person, and that person is Yahweh, and we know that Jesus is Yahweh, which we haven't covered yet, but we will, and we know that the Father is Yahweh. So this is what you get with the Trinity. It's the only possible way to explain and make sense of all this. Don't forget all the verses we just covered previously that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ. So all these things are, are interrelated. So does, does the Spirit proceed from the Father or the Father and the Son? The answer is both. The Eastern Orthodox teaching on this is incorrect. And it's just the way it is, because ultimately this is what Scripture tells you, not tradition. And, and when you're basing your tradition off of things that are in conflict with the Scriptures, that's when tradition is not to be obeyed. But I digress. Do we know how all of this exactly works? The answer is no, we don't. The Trinity is not something we can 100% understand. The Bible clearly teaches that both the Father and the Son are involved in sending the Spirit, that they have the authority to do so, very clearly so, as you saw from these verses. The Bible teaches that Christ was the one who created the world. He's the one who breathed into man the breath of life. And he also did so with the apostles, giving them the Holy Spirit, giving them new life. He's the originator of that action. And we also know that the Bible teaches the Spirit is Yahweh and God. So what do you make of that? Well, you make, first off, that there's a trinity and that everything that they do, the persons, they're always doing of one mind and one accord. And the Spirit is involved in the process and and. He does everything that the Father and the Son agree to do. It's a it's a mutual, or I should say a try, whatever, you know, mutual is the word for two, but whatever the word would be for three people, a consensus, let's put it that way. They always have consensus. Everything they do is consensus. And that's the most consistent way. When we try to divide things up within God, like you're trying to divide authority and, you know, things like, well, the the 
spirit only proceeds from the Father. Well, now you're splitting God up in in different ways in the Trinity that the, the scriptures don't do that. All authority has been given to Christ. The Father and I are one. All of what the Father has is mine. How do you make of that? I mean, there's no separation in terms of authority, in terms of essence, godness, godhood. Jesus and the Father are equals, and that means that the Spirit can proceed from both, very clearly so. But again, don't be dogmatic about it, because we don't really... <laughs> on this side of eternity, we're, this is probably as most as we can understand, because the Scriptures give us a lot, but they also leave a lot of questions, too, because God is infinite. He's a mysterious being in that sense. We, we don't have any reference point for a trinity, for the way these things are working within God. But this is what the Bible teaches. So I hope that this has been edifying. A couple of final thoughts for you. John 7, verse 24 reminds us, do not judge by outward appearances, but judge with right judgment. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord judges the heart. Like when Samuel was picking David, and he was looking at all the good-looking guys, all the good-looking brothers of David, and he said, oh, this one's going to be king. And the Lord told him, no, don't look on outward appearances. Why do I cite these verses to you? Because we tend to look on outward appearances. The Holy Spirit is the least talked about as a person, probably the least understood, but that doesn't mean he's not a person. We don't have a way to visualize the Holy Spirit. We have a dove, and that's about it. We don't have a personal quality in the sense of a visualization of that personal quality. And so it's very challenging to relate to the Holy Spirit as a person. But he is a person, and I invite you to explore that because it will deepen your appreciation of God, to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, because we are invited to have fellowship with him, as you saw from many of those previous verses. But different economy means different roles. And I've used this example before. It's not a perfect example, but you have the manager, the superstar, and the PR team. The father is the one overseeing things. You can think of it this way. The superstar is the one performing, which is Jesus, right? He came into reality. He's doing the work. He's the one we relate to. And then you have the support or the PR team that's that's doing all the support and running around and doing things to support the superstar and to get the agenda moving along. Now, again, this is a very faulty example because it's limited to the physical world. But I want you to see that all three of those examples are part of one ontological group, right? Complex unity. Same with the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they each have different things that they're doing. The even different economies, but they're equally God, which is very, very important. People often make the mistake when they see the superstar performing that that's the only person there, right? When we see, for example, you know, some famous athlete you like or a NASCAR racer or a boxer, you, you just see the superstar because that's what's obvious. We judge by appearances. We don't see the managers. We don't see all the people working behind the scenes for them and, and just doing so much to make that person shine. Now, again, you know, God is different from these examples, so I don't want to read too much into these, but the point is this, we don't see the Father, and yet God, Jesus has said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We don't see the Holy Spirit, yet the Bible tells us that the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. So we've seen Christ, so we have a personal 
idea of who the Spirit is by relating it to the Spirit of Christ, because we know who Christ is. And so you have these mysteries, you have these mysteries and realities that are just very fascinating, but at the end of the day, if the Spirit is a force, you have some serious problems. Because if if he's controlled by both the Father and the Son as this force that the Father and Son can just kind of use for their uses, you have binatarianism, which is a heresy. But the problem is this, two people share the same spirit and same force or energy, whatever. How, how does that work? If the spirit is shared by the Father and the Son, how do we know when the Father is using it and when the, when the Son is using it? Do you see the, the problem here? Does one... Spirit control both the Father and the Son. That's something to think about if that's the case. If they're sharing the Spirit, is really the Spirit controlling both of them? If the Spirit controls both the Father and the Son, then the Spirit is the one who's the chief ontologically, not the Father. Do you you see like the issues that you have when you reject the Spirit being a person and fitting it into the Trinitarian model? where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and the certain relationships that are outlined within that trinity, you have ontological changes because you've rejected the ontology of the Spirit as God. This is what it leads to. Who led Christ into the desert? Was it himself? Was it his Father? If the Spirit is a force that both are using, do you see the problem? Who was the dove at the baptism? Again, spirits don't, or forces don't take on, you know, embodiments, especially with animals or people or anything else. And how do you deal with a person that's separate throughout Scripture, which we clearly saw today through the Old Testament and the New Testament? When Christ sends the advocate, obviously he is sending somebody different. Is he sending himself? That doesn't make any sense. So many problems with modalism and with binatarianism and with these belief systems that reject the Trinity— Now, in John 16, verse 14, we know that the Spirit glorifies Christ. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, the Spirit glorifies Christ. But if the Spirit is just a force, or we're dealing with a modalist type of situation, is Christ saying that he, meaning himself, will glorify himself? Do you see, like, it doesn't make any sense? From a Trinitarian perspective, glorification makes perfect sense. The Spirit is a person that gives glory to the Son and to the Father. The Son gives glory to the Father. The Father gives glory to the Son. It's an inter-Trinitarian thing. They are seeking the glory of God, but God is an inter... It's a tri-personal being. And so it's just so fascinating how that works. It really is because it works to redeem the character of God and to redeem all these things that we see in Scripture where God is seeking his own glory, of course, but it's much more nuanced than that. God seeks his own glory within himself, which is, which is a profound thought to think of. And it makes sense of everything we see in Scripture. But this, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Jesus. And because Jesus is God, the Spirit is Yahweh. And the Spirit is God. Does that make sense? So you have the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Jesus. We know that... All these things are equated to Yahweh. Throughout the scriptures, the Spirit is God. The Spirit is his own person, and he is God. Our language cannot deal with these spiritual realities very well. 
This is something you have to remember from this entire series is that ultimately, no matter how much we, that's why I said earlier, I have to watch my words. It's, it's, it's challenging to discuss these things and really do them complete justice because ultimately they, they cannot be fully described in the physical world through our language. Our language is very limited. When I say person, I mean, you know, I bring things to your mind that, that some of those, those things don't apply to God. And nevertheless, we have to try to selectively take out the things that do apply to God, like emotions, a will, self-awareness, those things apply to God. But a physical body and limited in time and space, that doesn't apply to God. So these things are inherently challenging, and we can't explain it with 100% accuracy, but we can marvel at it, and I hope that this episode has helped you learn the truth about the Holy Spirit, and of course, by extension, seeing the Trinity is true. The Father and the Son are both separate persons, and they are both Yahweh. Of course, in the un- upcoming set of episodes we have, we're going to be looking deep dive into the life of Jesus, his ministry, his words, the words of other people, and why Jesus is himself Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is also the second person of the Trinity. And what does all this mean if Jesus is God? Well, it means that you have a perfect atonement, and it means you have a Trinity. And the Trinity is the only way to explain the facts. So I hope today has helped you on that road, if you're struggling with this topic, you can feel free to put some comments in there, see see what you think, what are you going through, and if you have any struggles with it, feel free to reach out to me too. I mean, I'm, I'm always around, tutor at danceoflife.com. I'm happy to help you with discussion with your own journey with this. I can't claim to completely understand these things. I do my best. I don't think anybody can because we're dealing with the omniscient, omnipresent, uncreated God. And so our understanding will always be limited to whatever extent. And so I hope this has helped you though. I hope you help at the very least see that the Holy Spirit is a person and that person is God. And that means that you have a Trinity. So until next time, take it easy and God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.